Great. So welcome back. Yeah. This is the Poor Pearls Almanac. I'm Elliot here with Andy and Matt. And what what are today we're talking what? Toma- tomatoes? We're finally gonna talk tomatoes? Oh hell yeah. Well, it's about time because I was thinking, you know, no, can... it's a metaphorical tomato of the tree crops. Jesus Christ, we were so close. What does that even mean? He sounds like he sounds like Joe Biden. It means that John Hershey provided the sweet, sweet, beautiful fruit the permanent agriculture movement drew from. That's as close as I can get to a Joe Biden impression. It's not good. It's not great. I'll say that. And then, and then just <laughs> listen. <laughs> yeah okay <So>, jack <laughs> wow Sorry, i boy. forgot the jack yeah yeah i don't love the direction that this episode is taking and we're only what 30 seconds in uh do we have a poor pearls record for like these sorts of things because i think this is the quickest we've crashed and burned check with dom it's up there uh so i feel like we have some other close contenders uh it's a talent in our history so we've talked about our buddy J. Rock Smith, J. Russell Smith, for those who did not listen to that two-parter. And J. we Rock talked baby. about how that was like during that time where tree crops kind of got this really big momentum. But the second to Smith in terms of recognition and importance in the tree crops kind of subculture of the permanent agriculture movement is the man we're talking about today, John Hershey. Yes, the John Hershey, the chocolate man. Not the chocolate not man. Not the chocolate man. Just another Two initial last name white guy. Duh. Maybe. I don't he JW Hershey. I don't think anyone ever called him JW, but we could. We could do it for him. Make him more important. <laughs> he could be the first. We could. We could change history, is what I'm saying. We always so, do. So the the reason why most people know the name John Hershey, not the candy, is the Downingtown Food Forest, uh, which you, a lot of people they'll hear about as like the first American food forest or something along those lines. And we actually talked about it like way back uh, when the podcast started in a, a Patreon episode. But the reality is why we always talk about or talked about the food forest and not the man is there's just not a whole lot of information about his life that's readily available online. Until now. Until now. But no, really, uh, this episode, in terms of research and, like, digging, was probably the most intense that I've had to do for this podcast because there was so much work to kind of find stuff, and then a lot of the data was conflicting, so, like, fact-checking it and kind of paring that down to, like, what was actually discernibly true. And honestly, on top of that, there's this reality that there's a lot of new information that's probably going to come out about John Hershey over the next few years as uh, some other things become uncovered about him. But for now, this episode will probably be the most comprehensive thing about John Hershey that's out there outside of the paired substack piece, which has a little bit more detail that we're probably not going to get into in this episode. Great. And I'm, I'm sure people will remember that this is the first people that have comprehended john hershey on this obscure podcast someone's got to do it i mean this is a dude who planted a bunch of nut trees and honey locusts in pennsylvania though right like we talked about this his forest before according to lancaster county pennsylvania where i had to go reach out to get his birth certificate the man john walter hershey was born on february 5th 1898 to john Kreider hershey and mary mays hershey john's father much like him was also a farmer and wait you his mother's maiden name was Maze. It was. That's amazing. Ah. Uh, Fine, I'll play. Listen, that was the corniest joke ever. Just move on. Move on. I appreciated it, man. I just wanted you to know. It's corny. So there's actually nothing really recorded about John's life as a child. We do know he had an interest in farming from his father, and he had a Mennonite background. He also once talked about growing up on the farm, and he explained that diversified farming was our salvation, which suggests that his father wasn't wasn't likely a a big advocate of the increasing monocropping that was becoming more common at the late uh, end of the 19th century. Early on in his career, probably teens, late teens, we don't know exactly when, he was able to connect with a guy, J.F. Jones, name you might recognize if you're very into the space otherwise you probably don't know him but he also uh was someone that was kind of a tree crops legend 
early, early on in the movement before it was even really a movement. He'd come from Florida, moved to Louisiana, ended up in Pennsylvania because it was a better climate for the trees he wanted to work with. And he saw John as this young kid who had a lot of potential. And he kind of became his mentor. John worked on his tree nursery and eventually made friends and connections with a bunch of other figures in the tree crops world, like our boy J-Rock, J. Russell Smith, someone who he would later describe as kind of a godfather-like figure for him as he was developing his knowledge in this area. We have not talked about J.F. Jones. This is another person with two initials last name. So are we really not going to like put like respect on his name like who is this guy yeah i mean he's interesting but the series does need to end eventually so you know maybe something's going on the list so john married his wife elizabeth kitch in 1925 and it was at the same time they started developing his own nursery on eight acres on the east end of downingtown pennsylvania the date that they actually started this nursery is up for debate john described it as 1924 in some of his writings. Uh, in an interview his wife did in the 80s with Greg Williams, she said it was 1921. Who knows? It wouldn't be until almost a decade later that he would actually have any stock to sell, which would be around 1932. So basically either timelines between seven and 10 years is totally reasonable in either direction. So that doesn't really help us have a better understanding of when, when he started the actual nursery. And it was around this time that John and his wife adopted their daughter, uh, a baby named Catherine May Detterling, whom they called Kitty and somebody who would stay basically involved in the farm most of their lives. And uh, Kitty would end up marrying this guy, Sam Murphy, who basically when John gets sick in his older age, they would basically manage the farm while John was recovering from surgery and whatever else was going on. Lastly, she does remarry a guy later on in life named James Young because Sam dies in the 50s. And she ends up dying in, I think, 2003, something like that. But the reason I'm bringing this up is that we do know from Betty's obituary that she had grandkids. And those grandkids are probably still alive today. And those are probably the only people left on the earth who might have some memories of John before he was dead. So if you happen to live in Lancaster and any of that sounds kind of familiar... Please shoot us a message. Yes, please let Andy creep on your family tree. Very wholesome and fine. Yeah, surely nothing bad could come from that. I mean, that's what biographer means, right? Andy, you could be a biographer now. We just have to put it on a business card. Thanks, guys. I feel really loved and appreciated <laughs> after I mean, that. If, I mean, if you don't have a business card, it's creepy. Okay. Yeah, I get true. Business cards, like if you're, if you're just showing up at the door and advertising biographer, that's creepy. Anyway, listeners of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. But he he has a card. How much more legit could it get than a business card? Come on. The early years at the nursery were pretty tough. He talked about the soil being basically, in his words, sick and lifeless with two to four inches of topsoil and lots of stones. Basically, he was like, oh, well, if the soil's not really good, let's just add some manure. So he did that, and uh, he didn't really understand how that would have multiple effects. And basically, it destroyed his English walnuts. He was like, huh, I guess I need to learn a little bit more about, like, soil. He got more involved in understanding, like, cover crops, permanent green crops, using, like, chop and drop, things like that. It wasn't until, like, the mid-30s that he really started even, he was bringing in, like, leaves. So he'd actually have these trucking companies by, like, the late 1930s trucking in like 70 large dump truck loads of leaves to basically build his soil. John the Leaf King of Downington, Pennsylvania. But that's that's so many leaves. I mean, I just imagine this guy in rural Pennsylvania on a rural Pennsylvania farm swimming through leaves like Scrooge McDuck does with the coins in his little vault. Hey, we're taking a quick break in the episode to remind you that you can get a whole lot more information from poorproles.com. On our website, we have access to our supplemental reader for the podcast, which provides more depth and context, as well as thorough citations for all of the stuff we talk about in the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter, which updates you about limited releases, such as various nursery stock that we sometimes sell through the Poor Proles website, as well as updates about new merch that we have. 
You can also support the show through that website, poorpearls.com, where you have access to our Patreon and our Substack to get early releases for articles and episodes. Now, if you enjoy the show and are just looking for even more audio content, go check out Tomorrow Today, which just wrapped up season one, or tune into the Gastropocene, which is a project of myself and Dr. Aisha Khan to discuss the way our diets have driven the Anthropocene and what it looks like to use our diets for good. Now, back to the show. Now, John was drawn to the, in his words, biodynamic idea, moving away from the conventional fertilizers that were becoming more accessible since basically World War One, and relying basically on all these inputs that he was getting naturally, leaves and so on, as well as like dry blood and raw bone. And again, that's that's from his own words. By the late 1940s, he'd kind of, I don't want to say gone off the deep end, but he got more aggressive with his willingness to do different things and would use, and I in quote, soupy dog manure from the hunt club, as well as five tons or more of backhouse material. Backhouse, as in outhouse, as in Hershey using the actual Hershey squirts. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Elliot. Oh, warning first. <laughs> yes, the, the Hershey man was uh, really making sure his namesake, namesake was part of the farmland. You know, the squirt to dirt, the poop loop getting closed. Come on. Finally, we're closing the poop loop. We're back to closing the poop loop. It's that essential question of humankind. It really has plagued us since the dawn of civilization. This was not a problem for hunter-gatherers, that's all I'm going to say. So I'm just thinking about this in the cyclical terms. We try to talk about, or I try to understand when we talk about stuff on this podcast. I'm going to go ahead and put poop at the bottom. So this is the bottom of the cycle. No, on the cycle of like how life goes, the circle of life here, Andy. I mean, serious. Yeah, but he's looking for, yeah, that decaying matter and stuff that's going to break down into the soil that... I think of when you think of fertile soil. I just, I try to imagine the soupy dog poop that he's talking about. Like, first off, dogs don't usually have soupy poop. The second off, can you imagine what that smells like at scale if there oh, is? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it's just like that. I, I, I can imagine. I've, going. I've cleaned yeah, up after right? my friend's pack of Great Danes. I can imagine what that smells like. Yeah, I'm sure it's great. <laughs> that said, all these things, by 1943, he had proven that his two to four inches of topsoil had made it to eight to 12 inches. So like, Damn. that's a lot of poop soup, basically, and leaves. And John had evolved his land management practices throughout that decade. He'd originally started with chickens for insect management, but later switched to ducks because they had a huge Japanese beetle problem and the ducks could solve it. The chickens could not. John also tried to use native plants to draw things like caterpillars away from the plants that he wanted to be healthy. So they would obviously naturally draw to the native species because that's what they like and that's what they evolved with. So he used like native cherries. He would grow soybeans that the rabbits would eat to keep them away from his hazelnuts. And just to be clear at this point, we're not talking about the Downingtown nursery that people are familiar with. This is his first smaller nursery. But to back up a little bit, because we've, we've fast forwarded to the 40s, The 20s was also a really tough time for John for other reasons, other than the fact that his farm was struggling early on. He lost his daughter, Patricia Ann Hershey, who died shortly after birth in 1927. And then he also lost his son, John K. Hershey, who died in 1928 after birth as well. The third piece of that was J.F. Jones, his mentor, would also die unexpectedly in 1928. Jesus Christ. That is is not a good run. And also, just for... We're keeping in mind the next year the stock market crashes. So I'm not saying it was his fault, but you know, coincidences. It's gotta be a rough few years. Doesn't sound like a good year. The twenties did not sound fun for Mr. Hershey. No. So poor, poor guy. It was a tough time for him, but it was also kind of a time where his career took off in some capacity. So he started making these connections. He got to know J. Russell Smith. We don't really know what that relationship development looked like at this point, but we do know by the late 20s, early 30s, he'd had a pretty good relationship with Smith. And we know this because in 1933, the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, was officially signed by President Roosevelt as part of the redevelopment of rural America, basically. Now, Arthur Morgan, a name you may recognize, but probably don't, 
He oversaw much of the agricultural and forestry parts of the TVA. Interesting guy, almost did an episode on him for this series, decided he was too racist to do it and wasn't that significant enough. But he is, there's, there's some really interesting stuff about him out there. He wanted J. Russell Smith to head the tree crops. That was his like, that was his catch. He was like, I want to do this project. This is the man to do it. He's a legend and nobody can compete with him. And Smith was just basically like, no, thanks. I want nothing to do with working for the government. But I do know a guy. And that guy was John Hershey. And just basically on Smith's recommendation, this dude who had a little eight acre you know, tree nursery in Pennsylvania became the head of the TVA's Experimental Tree Crops Division, overseeing hundreds of thousands of trees. And in April of 1934, left his nursery to go to Tennessee, and he left it in the hands of a friend of his named John Pennebaker. Okay, so who's just this dude with a small nursery, and he was given the oversight of like the biggest experimental tree crop nursery in the world because Smith said it was a good idea. It's all about who you know. Smith was like Bailey in a lot of ways. Like we talked about Bailey had like this power over basically anyone he talked to where he's like, hey, we should do this. And everyone was like, yup, yup. I don't know why you wouldn't think that. Uh, Smith kind of had that same power around tree crops because he was so innovative at the time. And he also had like this real huge name recognition. So when he was like, yep, this is the guy you need, not me. And they're like, oh shit, like we're we're getting a sneak peek at who's like, who do the masters look up to kind of thing. So the tree crop nursery uh, for the TVA was near the Norris Dam in Tennessee. And he went to go work with a couple of very big name people, nationally renowned in their fields in genetics and things like that, including one guy named Harry Stewart, who had been also tutored by J.F. Jones. Basically what they would do is they would travel the valley and harvest nuts from the best trees that they could find with the thinnest shells, the best fruits, persimmons, things like that. And they had a team of planters who basically were just like, hey, this tree has good nuts, harvest every single one from them, we're going to go plant them next spring. That was what they did all day. Now, John wasn't just focused on natives, even though that was a big component, obviously. He worked with jujubes, che, both Asian and American persimmon, hickory, pecans, honey locusts, blueberries, oaks, blackberries, basically anything that created food that you could think of that grows out of the ground that was perennial, they were interested in. I actually wanted to do an episode on that TVA during this time because there was another nursery that was just about reforestation and uh, what they were doing was just insane. So maybe maybe sometime we'll get to it. Okay, so it's kind of interesting that blueberries are on that list. Most people are familiar enough with John Hershey's work to know the trees, but he wasn't just working with trees. He was also working with like any bushes that produced fruit, anything he thought could be made better. And like obviously blueberries have come quite a long way. I don't think you could buy them in grocery stores 70 years ago. So like they and if you eat wild blueberries, you know, the very big difference in size between a wild and a nursery grown blueberry. And I think all this speaks to the fact that there needs to be more scholarship around Hershey and you know, the fact that there's probably a lot of cultivars out there that have survived, but nobody's aware of them. Now, what was interesting about the experimental nursery that he worked with was that it was wildly visionary. It was the first forest breeding project on this scale in the world, especially in this like experimental sense. So we talked about the fact that him and his guys would literally just wander around Tennessee trying to find trees, but they also would do a lot of the same thing that Smith was doing. The contests, right? So they were running contests for acorns that were sweet, for sugar-filled honey locusts, for the biggest persimmons, and so on and so forth. And a lot of these are the same plants that you can see today when you open up, like, the permaculture, tree crop, nursery kind of stuff. You know, most of those, the the big-name ones, started here. I wouldn't say most, but a decent amount of them started here. And obviously, like, a lot of this was also predicated on, like, indigenous breeding over thousands of years in in many cases. Like we talked about the honey locust and how it had been spread and managed by indigenous people in the whole tree nut series. We talked about the same thing. These competitions, were they like the ones that we talked about with J. Russell Smith? You started doing contests trying to find the best cultivars. Was it the same idea? Do you know who came first? I don't know who came first. I think it was Smith because he was doing a lot with, I think it was the Genetic Society, something like that. I don't know off the top of my head. But he was doing a lot of them. What's interesting is that these competitions, like you could see there's a clear disconnect between the people contributing to the competitions and like 
the people running the competitions. So, for like for example, um, the first contest that they did for Sweet Honey Locust was won by a woman in Villa Rica, Georgia. I don't know how close that is to you, Elliot, but might be close. Smith had requested scion wood from the woman, and she provided it. But oddly enough, the grafted trees didn't bear any pods. He passed on some scion to John Hershey, thinking maybe he screwed something up. Maybe John could get them to show some pods. And when John grafted them, he realized that they were all male. Huh, that's interesting. When Smith went to go find out what actually, like, what was going on, why were these scions not producing, like, to the woman that submitted them, she was like, actually, I don't know which tree that winner came from. It came from over there, and that's a quote, over there, pointing to a, a row of honey locusts. And when they were like, all right, can you, like, explain it a little bit more specifically? Because there's a lot of different trees right there, and we need to figure out which one that came from. She was like, I actually don't even really remember, but it was one, it was one of the ones with a low branch because I could cut it. And they're like, that, that is not the same as being like, that is the tree that the, the honey locust came from. And also, like, you sent a picture of the tree in with your sample. And she's like, oh, well, you wanted a good picture of a honey locust tree, so I just took a picture of that honey locust tree over there because it looks good. I don't want to send you a row of honey locusts. That looks stupid. And they're like, uh, yeah, that's not how this works. Man. Imagine doing that sort of sample and doing that at the, like, maternity ward. And it's like, yeah, your kid is that one in the corner, you know. The one that was easiest to get out of the bassinet right here without waking it up. So, congrats. It's a Steve. I feel like that definitely happened back in the day because I would explain my friend's dad. Raises more questions than it answers. So, so that said, not everything was a success, but uh, a lot of great genetics came from these competitions. Two in particular are the Calhoun and Millwood honey locusts that people are pretty familiar with because of how ridiculously high the sugar content is. The vision of the Tennessee Valley Farmer was to be similar to like what we've talked about in the past in a lot of other parts of the country. The Iberian Peninsula, California, the pastoral lifestyle, the, the idea of like a healthy ecosystem that is managed by grazing and things like that. That was what was envisioned for the Tennessee Valley. Obviously, it didn't happen because that's not what Tennessee is today. And again, that's why the TVA, I think, would be actually a really interesting episode to kind of dive into. But the ultimate vision was for a rural community that embraced and leveraged the technology around it to improve the material conditions that existed around it without destroying nature. You know, that that was basically our response to like the, the Dust Bowl that came up is how do we how do we manage the landscape without destroying it, but getting something out of it? Man, I can like literally hear Liberty Hyde Bailey's voice. Like, it sounds like he'd say, "Yeah, I mean, you could definitely hear Bailey like screaming from South America, halfway in a swamp. His wife annoyed behind him, being like, <laughs> do it.' And he was like, just too far away to make everyone just do whatever he wanted. So, at this point, was he considered successful in his time, or was he too early, and his work wasn't appreciated until later? And talking about Hershey, yeah. So we're going to talk about that in a minute. The last thing I want to bring up on this idea of the TVA is that it was based on the work of these two folks, Ebenezer Howard, which is like the oldest name you could ever think of. Yeah, Jesus Pat Christ. <laughs> and Patrick Geddes, who wrote about this idea of garden cities, which would kind of be the blueprint for the RPAA, the Regional Planning Association of America. And this is we way back, like episode four, we did on small, gritty, and green, and not also talked about this idea of garden cities as like historical idea of like maximizing the utility of a city without losing the green space and the natural component of an, of how people have existed. So I, I think that's probably something we should talk about at some point. Oh, I'm sure that's already on the list. You see how long it is? Like I said, Arthur Morgan was like really interested in this idea of tree crops, and he wanted to keep a very open line of communication with Hershey. John would always say that his goal was to select tree crops, and his goal was that they would be, in quote, planted on the unplowable hills of America so that when a complex economy breaks down, the individual will have a little more ease in standing the strain of having to go back to a self-sustaining plane of, in quote, just living as our forefathers did and as every other people did when the pressure of cultures on the soil broke its back and the artificialities of materialism receded in decay, end quote. So those are the Doomer vibes that we feel today. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, you didn't expect that from the John Hershey, did you? He's uh, an interesting fellow, as we're going to find out when he gets older and starts writing a little bit more and is a little bit more open about his politics. And yeah, we'll, we'll get there. 
I'm going to take that quote and replace tree crops with weed and start. That's how I'm starting mm-hmm. my whole following, baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Word for word, plagiarized to the max, Hershey. So, uh, like I said, there's two nurseries, the one in Clinton, Tennessee, and the one that John oversaw. oversaw. The scale of the nurseries, like I said, it's hard to imagine. There were hundreds of thousands of trees they were working with. And there's really been little written about the Norris Tree Nursery in particular. And it's largely been considered an overall failure. And part of that was because it was unable to implement any like long-term changes in like the role of tree crops in North America. And like obviously we've talked about this idea that tree crops are not a quick turnaround crop. So giving it a decade is not enough time to like make any meaningful change. But I would argue that it wasn't so much of a failure because like the results still exist in nurseries across North America. Now, part of the reason for the failure was due to the fact that John became incapacitated. In 1936, John was diagnosed with stomach cancer and he spent 11 weeks in Philadelphia in the hospital. Afterwards, even though he went back to work, he was in a much limited physical capacity. By 1938, so two years after he'd been diagnosed, he decided to go back to Pennsylvania and he stayed on as a consultant for another year at the Norris Nursery, but he was basically done with that project and he, I think, was a little disenfranchised by the way the government handled everything. I I forgot when he was born, but what is he, like 30, 38 years old or something like this right now? Yeah, he's born in 98, so he's 30, 38, 40, 38 years old. Yeah, 38. Sucks. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. damn. And fortunately for him, he was able to fend off the cancer for a while, and that clouds his view about science, as we'll see. While John's primary work was the breeding of trees, he also, part of his job was to write about them and their findings, and it definitely pushed him to continue writing afterwards when he went back to Downingtown. And he used this time to really write about like why trees were important as a crop, and what I think was particularly important was this idea of like, selling them as a purpose tree instead of a novelty. So like he would talk about like acorns being like the corn of the the corn tree, basically like acorns can be used in a similar way to corn. That was the way he sold it. So it was how do I supplement or replace this crop with another crop? How do I take a tree crop and replace an, an annual crop? And that was a lot of how he tried to narrate his reasoning behind tree crops. He also would talk extensively about things that were not necessarily the crops themselves. So, for example, in 1934, he wrote a bulletin about woody winter-bearing fruits for wildlife because part of his biodynamic vision was that you needed more birds to for insect control. And, I mean, it's a very valid argument, right? And it ended up actually getting picked up by the forest management and gaming authorities and has influenced how game authorities manage for wildlife and hunting which was like important to John because he was an avid pheasant hunter. Andy, the biodynamic man. Don't say that. You heard it here first, listeners. Andy has entirely uncritical support for biodynamics. Jesus, why would you do this? What did I do to you? (laughs) Dom, commercial. Hey you, do you like food? What the fuck? Do you like being alive? Ah. Uh, do you like guns? How did you get my- then what the fuck are you doing? Why aren't you listening to the Poor Pros Almanac? Who are you? The Poor Pros Almanac talks goats, guns, and country- Not music. Uh, learn to shear sheep twice as fast as your ass. Hold on. Smash that subscribe button on the YouTube to watch their how-to videos and content, and visit the website at poorpros.com to learn more. Dude, just get the fuck- <laughs> So he returned home after being at the TVA, and uh, he took a bunch of the scion wood with him, seedlings, things, seeds, you name it. He took as much crap as he basically could with him from Tennessee and was like, all the best stuff is coming back with me. When he came back after like managing this massive scale of nursery and like having this like a team of people that basically just did whatever he wanted them to, it became very clear like eight acres was not going to cut it for him anymore. Within six years, he and his wife bought Downington, the farm that everyone knows now or has heard of, that is now the Downingtown Food Forest, right? It was about 40 acres, and it gave him an opportunity to basically apply all the things he had experienced at the nursery without any red tape and being able to just basically do what he wanted with the best genetics that he found in the country. So he had these TVA collection genetics, plus he was getting a ton of stuff from Smith. 
because Smith was already in the mid 40s getting ready to wrap up his farm because he was a bit older than John. So he was already in his 60s, 70s at this point, and he was getting too old to be doing what he was doing. So he was giving a lot of stuff to John, and it was just like getting the best of the best all in one spot in Pennsylvania. So has anyone bothered to see what remains from J. Russell Smith's nursery like they do with the Downington Nursery from Hershey? Honestly, I don't really know. I've never heard anyone talk about it. My guess is that it's been mostly paved over, but I, I would imagine there's probably some residual trees out there. Now, John's new farm, much like his first farm, had been largely destroyed by petrochemical fertilizers, and he spent the first few years there building up the soil the same way he did the last one. He had his uh, his wet poop, his compost, his cover crops, his oats, all that fun stuff. He was closing the loop again. Uh, it was here good that man. man what just loves himself a good stew, poo stew. I wish we would just drop that and continue. <laughs> <laughs> so for folks that are not super oh. familiar with his nursery, he had black walnuts, English walnuts, oaks, pecans, hickories, hickans, chestnuts, filberts. Persimmons, honey locusts, mulberries, probably the blueberries and blackberries that we that he was working with at the TVA. I've never heard anyone talk about them, but I don't doubt that they were there at some point. He also had trees that were there just for the ecosystem benefits to keep the the birds off of his stuff and try to get them to eat the insects and all the stuff that he was strongly an advocate for. And he started writing a ton, doing these annual reports, and again, really pushing the, especially acorns. He had this like obsession with the William Penn acorns, the old, old oaks that had been in Pennsylvania since basically the founding of Pennsylvania. He used to say, like, we need more acorn-fed children. I mean, I've heard of corn-fed kids because, I mean, this is America, but think about the hardy stock in those acorn-fed kids. They could work on the farm all day long. They, can, yeah, they don't need to sleep. They're acorn fed. <laughs> there's, Like I said, there's still more stuff coming out about John's writing work. There will be more after this comes out, I'm sure. A recent manuscript titled The Honey Locust, The Hill Sugar Factory, One of America's Living Diamonds, that was recently rediscovered. Uh, and fortunately, Greg Williams had protected it, stored it for decades when no one else cared about it. And now we're fortunate enough to bring these things to light and highlight that there was all this other stuff that people didn't know about him. Now, in the in that book, the Honey Locust book, he talks about firsthand reports of people using Honey Locust for feeding cattle, pigs and kids, you know, roasting the pods to eat them for humans. And you even like kids like, making... like goats and cattle and pigs or do you mean like human children? <laughs> I meant kids as in human children. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> if that was not clear, I did not. It just not sounded funny because you threw them in, but you know, it's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Gotta get all the animals fed. You know, it starts with the kids and then cattle, just... pigs, kids, you know, all the yeah. animals. Uh, but he also talks in the book about like making beer out of honey locusts, which, you know, sounds interesting. He also uh, talks about like the best way to process honey locusts that most of the bitterness comes from the stock itself and that the fine powdery dust inside contains most of the sweetness and very little of the bitterness. So if you want to process them, that's some pretty pretty important information. Okay, so are we making honey locust beer next year? We're going to try yeah. that? I mean, we can. You're the home brewer. We can do anything, Elliot. We you want me to find some honey locusts down here and drive them up? Yeah, fill up a truck. Because that's the only way I'll come back up. With a truck shit. full of honey locusts. If we can honey make some locust. honey locust beer. Brew session. Sounds pretty good. We'll travel for honey locust beer. Let's do it. Also, done. It just just that tight that's that's such a um like nice complimentary title for honey locust. <laughs> <laughs> the, we gotta the hype it up. Sugar Factory, one of America's living diamonds. I'm telling you, he was all about the PR when it yeah. came to the trees. It's all about spin, baby. Now, from the quotes that we've read so far, I think it's pretty clear that John had like a very, let's say, sharp personality. The question is like whether or not he was always like this or if this came from like working for the government, which like I would understand. But it's hard to tell because we don't have a whole lot from pre-TVA. We know that John didn't always see eye to eye with many, if not most of the folks in the permanent agriculture space or the tree crop space. And uh, I think this was very much to the detriment of him and 
us, the following generations. Uh, he was a, a very religious man, and he was very quick to criticize other folks in the permanent agriculture space for having different cultural values and politics from his own. And I'm going to read a long quote, and I'm sorry for all of this. Every person who takes a subsidy from the government, be he farmer, industrialist, or the lousy unionist who demands a bigger rake of off than he earns, you, the individuals who's taking it, are all in the prostitute's class. One thing I know for sure, such libertinism killed Rome, and it'll do the same to us. The brainwashing of communism is peanuts alongside the soul washing of our materialistic educational system. It's pathetic to hear the stream of condemnation on communistic slavery while enmeshed to strangulation by the gods of our choice. Those cultural meddlers. Then there's the group of well-wishers, social uplifters, do-gooders, who would have others live the right way while they continue to live in Saddam and Gamar. These are banded together. Saddam and Gomorrah, man. Sorry. Saddam. Saddam. (laughs) (laughs) And Gomorrah. These are banded together under such titles as the Country Life Association, Friends of the Land, Health Organizations, and Organic Gardening Groups. Damn. So he, you know, he really felt a type of way. This guy was throwing stones. Bottom stones. He did not like, he didn't like to eat catfish, I guess. <laughs> yeah, he he would be considered by today's standards pretty strongly right wing, right? What doesn't make sense, though, is like he was very close to Smith. And we've talked about the fact that Smith and all of his friends were like socialist or like really sympathetic to socialism. Right. And all those movements that we just talked about, the Country Life Association, Friends of the Land, like the Country Life Association was largely around like Scott Nearing. And I know we haven't talked about him yet, but he was one of J. Russell Smith's good friends from UPenn who was in the same space, and then Friends of the Land, and again, we haven't talked about him yet, was done by Russell Lord, who was basically another major figure in this movement, and J. Russell Smith was also one of the main contributors to the Friends of the Land. And then, like, the health organizations and organic gardening groups was largely the biodynamic of the Rodale Institute in Pennsylvania that John worked with all the time, according to his own wife, in interviews. So, like, these are all people that he knew and like theoretically worked with all the time yet here he is like being like these people are absolute fucking trash so like something is off with this yeah that's kind of a bummer to alienate himself from like all his peers i'm trying to piece this together he was like a right winger in this tree crop space that we have going on in america and because he disagreed with people politically he he wrote them off is that what we're saying? Even like religiously, he kind of wrote them off. Like if you didn't have the same religious values as him, he was kind of like, you were trash and a prostitute, which to him was like the worst thing you could say about somebody. But he grew up Mennonite or Quaker? Mennonite. Yeah, that's pretty hardcore. That makes sense. Yeah. So I, again, I don't know how much of this came from the fact that he went with worked for the TVA and just got totally like, felt like he got totally fucked over or what. But like clearly... He had some very strong feelings and like he I don't know how you manage a relationship with someone like Smith and also was like you are a trash person because you don't believe what I believe or something like there's something clearly going on that doesn't fully explain all of this. I do think it's interesting that he also was so close to the biodynamic movement and the organic movement when he had cancer. One of the things he always wrote about was like how his lifestyle of having like whole foods and like being doing labor and like working hard was what kept the cancer from killing him. Like that was his thing is like, I was supposed to die and I haven't died yet. So like clearly scientists or doctors don't know what the hell they're doing. And I know how to take care of myself better than them. Uh, Like you can make the argument that you got cancer at 34, even though you were doing that thing before. So I don't know. It, it, it like, is it interesting? And it's going to be a really interesting way to look at this narrative over the next two months as we move up into the modern era of homesteading and the ties to right wing ideology and all this stuff, how we can watch that go through time, uh, that this is like a really interesting one of the first documented examples of that outside of like the white supremacy slavery thing, although he does say some pretty gnarly shit about the coloreds i'll say and kudzu 
which he blames basically on black people, even though he being like an invasive plant. So he, he's got some issues. Um, the cultural meddlers he's talking about. Yeah. The cultural meddlers. And I like that. I'm, I'm using that. <laughs> he uh, ends up writing a book in the 60s, a few years before he dies, called Nature's Orbits, Man's Prophet. And the title of it is, this is an account of capitalism of nature, of God's handicraft, in forest and farm, so there might be on a record a declaration of the yardstick of measurement for human behavior. I really don't like what this is going. No, you shouldn't. So this dude's going to say capitalism is good and godly? Yeah, yeah, he's going to say that. Is he going to say uh, that? He he he. De- so he describes the oak and the walnut and the hickory trees, these older growth trees, as the, and this is his words, pillars of nature capitalism. And then he talks about the squirrel being the perfect capitalist, or in his words, a true capitalist, because in quote, he gathers more nuts and acorns than he needs, and then he deposits them in the bank of nature for future dividends. And again, to harken back to his whole like anti-authoritarian of knowledge piece, like the anti-intellectualism of like the today's right wing right wing movement. He argues the problem always like with any of these systems is the government and what he calls the professional minds, and that means like professional scientists and conventional farmers, anyone that has any education behind them. He says, like, clearly they're a fucking idiot, basically. Man, acting squirrely is going to mean something totally different now. Uh, the free of the market, the free of the squirrels. Yeah, I, I mentioned the, the kudzu vine thing. He also calls it, in that narrative of very targeted language, uh, communistic strangulation. Even though, like, in his own writing, he talks about, like, using the autumn olive because it fixates nitrogen and it has all these berries that are delicious. So, like, clearly there's a little cognitive dissonance going on. And I think this, like, just continues with this idea of, like, John's anti-intellectualism that I don't know if that came from dealing with the government being telling him things that he didn't agree with or what. And like his whole thing of like, well, doctor said I wouldn't be alive, but here I am. Like I've disproven science by eating whole foods. And like that whole narrative of like the naturalist fallacy drove a lot of John's work. Okay. So, I mean, he was right until he wasn't. Yeah. Until he wasn't. Now, John still wasn't really a huge figure until 1953 when Smith's uh, newest edition of tree crops came out with an included map of Hershey's farm as basically a template for what tree crops and tree crop management could look like in North America. And obviously Smith was a huge deal, but also that map was seen by Bill Mollison. You know, you might know that name from permaculture. And he basically pulled that template, modified it a little bit and stuck it in his book. And just like that, the man became a legend. Basically. And, you know, again, un- unsurprisingly, Bill Mollison blew up on the back of someone else. I know this is shocking. In 1958, only five years after Smith's book came out, John spent six weeks in the hospital where most of his stomach was removed. And uh, it would really be a number of years before he had any semblance of like a normal life. And this was when like his daughter, Catherine, and her husband, Sam, really kept everything going. And it was also at this point that his nursery had been going for almost a decade. Many of the saplings that they had planted were producing crops. Finally, John was basically getting to see his farm work in action. They had pigs and horses and cows and birds, and they were living off of the produce of these trees and grazing underneath them. And they were finally proving that his model worked. Oh, the pigs and mulberries. We, we, uh, John liked mulberries, too, you know. We had very good mulberries. Uh-huh. All of our snouts would be all full of mulberries. <laughs> and if you weren't persimmon, you had to get out early in the morning. The horses and the cattle would clean them up. Mm. And the acorns, the cows would eat the, the acorns. You know. The cows would eat them? Oh, yeah, and the honey soapy locusts, you know, that's good feed. As John's health declined, they closed the nursery and focused on the tree crop farm because they couldn't keep selling plants. They weren't really making any money. And John realized his longer term goal was that the trees that he planted didn't get cut down for suburbs. He wanted to turn it into an arboretum, which almost materialized, but they didn't have the money. He had originally planned to work with the Brandywine Valley Association to acquire the property, but ultimately the funds ended up getting diverted for another project. Okay, hear me out. Maybe if he hadn't been so alienating to other groups who felt similarly about these crops, he could have got more support to protect the land, maybe? 
I mean, I love helping people who call me uh, cultural meddlers. Unironically, though, I do like helping people who call me a cultural meddler. Call myself a cultural meddler. I think that should I don't be a like like cultural I'm, I'm fixing things. That's like the goblin that? version of influencer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a cultural, cultural meddler. meddler. <laughs> Bring it back. Thank you, John Hershey. He has one more contribution for us, and it is a great fucking name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> By 1965, it became obvious that John couldn't really manage the landscape anymore. He had basically lost all physical capacity to do so. It was around this time in the 60s that he sold off his nursery or his forest, as he called it. And the developer had initially agreed to leave the trees. But after the sale of the property, he basically was like, I never said that. On September 7th, 1967, John passed away. Many of the trees continued standing up until the early 80s, but they were more and more being cleared out. Now, throughout Downingtown, there's still evidence of the forest, especially at the villages at Timberlake. As interest from our generation and the folks below us have learned about tree crops and have gotten more interested in it, people have been showing up there, which I understand is very interesting because you want to save these genetics. You want to see this thing that existed once and get a taste of what that could look like. But it's become a problem for people that live there who didn't choose to have their that landscape bulldozed over. Uh, they just happen to live there. And uh, it's created increased police presence. And it's just made things uncomfortable for everyone involved. And it's making it difficult for people that are more formally qualified to, to manage these landscapes to have that have built these relationships with folks in these areas to do the work that they're doing that's important. So that's why I'm just letting people know, even if you want to go check it out, I don't recommend visiting the site to try to score some free seed or scion. And there are some folks that will do occasional tours. You can probably find them pretty easily if you start Googling this stuff. But uh, yeah, there's there's cops looking for you if you show up. So So don't go there. Unless you know a guy. It's all about who you know. Always about who you know. Now, John's work can fortunately be found elsewhere throughout the area, as he was like a very vocal and physical advocate for the good word of tree crops. So you can see like a a massive persimmon tree that he planted 80 years ago outside of the Downington United Methodist Church. There's more trees outside the local high school. And while everything keeps changing there, there will continue to be a lot of these trees that are still producing fruits and nuts that are some of the best in the world that are just, you know, trees in the neighborhood. So, okay, one sounds like a pretty cool town to live in if you're really into tree crops. Two, have people's efforts been, that have gotten, you know, collected genetic material from these trees, have they been successful in, like, keeping that going? Yeah, so fortunately, people have been trying to address this issue from a number of different fronts. So like Louise Bugby is working on a, a project to put the genetics of Hershey's Farm on public land so that it'll never be cleared, which is like a really interesting way to be like, hey, he wanted to create an arboretum. It's going to be younger, obviously, by 80 years, but we're going to do it on a different site. It's still going to be all the same trees, just a different site, uh, which is a really interesting way to to protect that stuff. And then you got like Buzz Fervor, who's been on the podcast, whose farm in Vermont has a ton of Hershey's genetics, possibly more than anywhere else on Earth. Then there's folks like Zach Elfers and Eliza Greenman, who, again, are both people that have been on this podcast talking about various things that have also worked to document and advocate for these trees and the, the genetics and to look for what else is out there that people have forgotten about. Max Pascal... There's just a number of folks that have quietly continued to do the work that needs to be done to keep finding out as much as we can. The reason why this episode can exist is because of the work those folks and others have been doing for decades, trying to keep this information from being lost. I mentioned Greg Williams earlier. The resources that he had that no one knew about until recently will likely rewrite a lot of the knowledge that we have about Hershey. And that was part of why I wanted to do this episode is because there's so little out there that gives you a comprehensive narrative about his life, about the context in which that nursery, that 
that forest exists within. But now you can kind of see how it got there and why it got there and the conditions that led to it being there. And also that like, you can read like, oh, there was this food forest and it got torn down. And that's sad without like thinking about like the bigger picture. Like it was a nursery. He was selling that genetics everywhere around the country. Those trees are out there. We have to find them, but they are out there. So if you know, sound like they're fucking aliens, they're out there, man. Yeah, like (laughs) fucking aliens. Like if you're on a farm and there's a fucking 70 year old, 80 year old, 100 year old tree that you're looking at, like, damn, that thing's got really good nuts or it's got really good honey locust pods or, you know, what the persimmons are just really unique. See if you can find out where they came from. It might have come from Hershey's Nursery. There's stuff missing that people are still trying to find. There's mulberries that he was growing that we don't know if they still exist. And he described them as the best mulberries in the world. And they were on his nursery and they're gone. Nobody can find them. But they are probably out there. Like anyone that's grown mulberries knows they're fucking impossible to get rid of. So those genetics are somewhere on the earth. We just need to find them. And this is my call to arms on that. Yeah, I feel like what like the missing piece of this t- talking about they're out there is we need to start convincing people that John Hershey was an alien and that all this like trees out here came from aliens. I think we need that's the sort of energy we need behind this hunt. I feel like he would really really hate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he would hate that. He would... More so than anyone else we've talked about on the show. He'd be like, no, please do not do that. You goddamn cultural meddler. I've got a simple brain. I have an easier explanation for all of this. You want to save a food forest, convince white folks there's cocoa beans to make chocolate in there. Because white folks love chocolate. White for... women love chocolate, first off. I also love chocolate. <laughs> I like chocolate, too. I'm going to go make Listen, some I was playing right on a now. trope, guys. It was a joke. Um <laughs> I'm going to go make some hot chocolate right now. It's not even cold down here. Shut up. Why would you say that? (laughs) Just for the hell of it. Just because you can. Get a taste of uh, freedom down there. So if you guys enjoyed this, there's a little bit more information out on him on our Substack. The article's a little bit longer. We go in a little bit more detail in the TVA. More detail than we just did. More detail than we just did. You want more more details, you get on there. If you you can can go on agroecologies.com. Agroecologies.org. Get that article, subscribe, get us a subscription. It's lots of fun. You get early access to everything. You can also go on Patreon, get early access to all of our episodes, which are obviously lovely, lovely pieces of content. Next week, we're going to talk about the evolution, not on individual people, but of the permanent agriculture movement from the late 19th century through the 1940s and tie all these different narratives into one cohesive story. And then we're going to be jumping into some interviews and going into the post-World War development of the permanent agriculture movement. Finally. We got the ingredients. Now we got to make the soup. Now we're making the soup. Isn't that exciting? Fun, fun content here at the Poor Pearls Almanac. We just, Elliot loves we just, We just keep it coming. The list keeps getting bigger. I just get more excited every episode we record. I just, I'm, I'm here for it. Elliot is just so high right now. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm not going to remember this tomorrow. (laughs) 